All right, so on that happy note, welcome back. It's been quite some time, and it feels like a lot longer sometime, but I hope everybody had a wonderful, wonderful Pesach. Uh, first of all, with absolute great pleasure that I would want to be among the first, at least in this group setting, to wish Zohar Bashiria Mazal Tov on her recent engagement. It's very exciting, exciting news. That's something that I, w- I think we should celebrate together as a group. It's, it's really very wonderful news. And so, congratulations. It's a great way, to, great way to start the evening, if you ask me. We're up to the Book of Daniel, if you're keeping score, which means that out of the 19 books that I promised you we would do over a two-year cycle, we've done 16 of them. And now we are three to go. It's kind of crazy to think that the next time we got it. Wait. We have plenty of source sheets. I just want to make sure everybody is receiving them somehow. Okay. The book of Daniel is one of the hardest books to deal with if you're actually going to go through it systematically. It's only 12 chapters long. Half of it is in Aramaic, and it kind of jumps around quite a bit, and there are some serious historical issues. When you're dealing with it in a survey, it's, it's one of the three books that I, that I haven't yet taught. So in, in, any, in any, other than, you know, this I could do, but, but, but to actually teach a course in it, I, 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 haven't, I haven't really had the guts to do that yet. So at some point, we'll see where it goes. My wife and I are always busy scheming of how I'm going to pick up the last three books. And so we'll see, we'll see how it goes. There are three books that I haven't yet taught, and I'm trying to figure out, will there ever be a, such a moment that I'll feel good about teaching them, and then I'll do it, or if not, then, uh, you know, here, you know, when I go to my grave, it'll say, here lies an angel, he's taught 21 out of 24, and he was pleased with that, and here are the three he didn't do. For, you know, it'll be something like that, and it's okay. You know, if, if, if I'll talk to the authors and say, okay, what do these books mean? And then I'll, I'll feel much better about the whole thing. The book actually divides into two very easy halves. Chapters 1 through 6 are stories about the person Daniel and his three friends. The famous ones are that his three friends get hauled into a fiery furnace because they refuse to bow to an idol and an angel saves them. Another one involves Daniel being thrown into a lion's den for praying toward Jerusalem instead of toward the king. God takes care of that one also. The lions are very tame until they throw in the bad guys and suddenly the lions become hungry again. That's the end. It was a bad day for them. And and there's that other really cool scene where a disembodied hand kind of writes some code stuff on the wall during a big big bash of Belshazzar, the last king of Babylonia. Daniel comes to interpret it and tells them that the Babylonian Empire is going down the tubes. And that night, of course, it went down the tubes. And that was the end. The setting of the story is that Daniel was exiled to Babylonia shortly before the destruction of the temple. Ballpark 600-ish BCE. That's the setting of the story. The destruction is in 586. He was exiled as a boy. And he right away was so precocious that he, along with his three buddies, Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah, were brought to the palace as they had a crack training session for future wise men of Babylonia, and they were eligible. And that's, and, that's, and that's really what happened. So they grew up in the palace, and over time, Daniel became famous in Babylonia for being one of the wisest of the wise, helped King Nebuchadnezzar, the very one who destroyed the temple, and his, his successors, and even helped the beginning of the Persian Empire, Kings Darius and Cyrus, and that's the last that we hear about him. The book divides into two halves. The first, the first six chapters are these stories. The other ones are a series of far-out visions, really far-out. And they all involve what we traditionally know as the four nations. Without getting into serious detail in this minute, but I'm not going to be able to solve any of it anyway, but at least I can tell you more about it in a few minutes. But for this minute, the point of the four nations is that there will be a series of four mighty empires. The first one is Babylonia in this sequence. And then you can try to figure out who the other three are. We'll talk about that. 
And after the fourth, which is the biggest and baddest and mightiest of them all, it will suddenly collapse and Israel will reign supreme and will have what you and I call the Messianic era. That's the gist of all of these four nations' visions. And that's the way that it goes. And that's the whole book. So the main messages of the book are pretty straightforward. One of them, in case you haven't figured it out yet, but the book of Daniel really goes for it, is that Judaism is superior to paganism. Right? So in case you haven't gleaned that lesson somewhere in the first books of the Bible, it certainly comes across very loud and very clear in, in our setting over here. Another one is that Jews should remain faithful to Judaism, risking their social status and even, if need be, their lives. It's a very clear value of the book that Daniel and his three friends retained their integrity at peril to themselves. And just to make sure that this is clear, when you read stories like this, and especially when you tell them to children, you got to watch it. Right? I've already told my daughters the book of Daniel three times. I went, you know, as I was putting them to bed tonight, I said, we're going to do the book of Daniel tonight. They're so excited. They're very excited for us, let me tell you. They're big, big, big fans. But I have to warn them as I'm telling these stories about Daniel being saved in the lion's den and the three friends being saved from the fiery furnace. The, even the book's point is that this is not commonly what happens when you get thrown into fiery furnaces or lion's dens. In other words, the book isn't promising that if we Jews are faithful like they were, we will be saved like they were. It doesn't make that promise at all. In fact, the three friends, Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah, as they're about to be thrown into the fiery furnace, look, look at their words, source number one over here, they had Babylonian names, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. Those are just Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah. Those were their Babylonian names. Said in reply to the king, who demanded that they... Demanded that they bow to the statue. We have no need to answer you in this matter. For if so, it must be our God whom we serve is able to save us from the burning fiery furnace and he will save us from your power, O king. But even if he does not, right? It's very clear that the friends aren't expecting, oh yeah, God is always going to show up and save the day. Even if he does not, be it known to you, O king, that we will not serve your God or worship the statue of gold that you have set up. That's That's one of the main messages of the book right there. It's in the mouths of three of the heroes, but it doesn't matter. The the book is trying to tell us. Yes, God is all-powerful, but God doesn't always act all-powerfully. He doesn't always step in and save the day. And that's not why we should do the right thing. We should do the right thing because it is the right thing. And it's very clear that the book does not promise miraculous salvation whenever Jews get themselves into peril. Another thing, which is a very important aspect of this book, just from the history of the whole, if you, it's a survey course, I could really go for it here. Uh, this is the only place in all of Tanakh, here's a statistic for you, where afterlife is explicitly discussed. Pretty crazy when you think about it, because in rabbinic Judaism, afterlife is a pretty big regular part of the picture. Right? Both the afterlife on a personal level, you die, your soul will go somewhere. And then on the global level, that after where we are right now, we will have the messianic era and we will have the resurrection, where souls come are reunited with the bodies. How that works, we'll leave that one to God, but that's a basic premise of, of our belief system. So the book of Daniel is the only time that it ever is said explicitly what I just said in all of Tanakh. Tanakh never talks about afterlife explicitly. It believes in it, but it never talks about it at all. It's simply not the goal. The goal of Tanakh is to create a perfect this world. The Messianic era, you ask any prophet, it's not about getting people into heaven, it's about getting this world to be a better place. The book of Daniel, in source number two, is the only time, so here you have it on on record, right here in source number two, the only place where you will have an explicit reference to the resurrection. 
Many of those that sleep in the dust of the earth will awake, some to eternal life, others to reproaches, to everlasting abhorrence. In other words, they're going to awake, they're going to come back to life, and the bad guys are going to get clobbered, and the knowledgeable will be radiant like the bright expanse of the sky, and those who lead the many to righteousness will be like the stars forever and ever. Okay, that's all. In other words, there's going to be a resurrection, good guys and bad guys. The bad guys are going to get clobbered, and the good guys are going to have a great day. Yeah? You said the bad guys, the evil guys. Yeah? This says others to reproaches. You know, they're not necessarily the evil guys. It's a, you're right. In the verse that we just read, you're right. In the, you're right. Out of context, you're completely right. In context, that's what's going on. The, the point is that there will be ultimate justice. Uh, ultimate justice. But let me tell you why the book of Daniel had to do it. That's actually the cool part. There's a reason why this book, unlike all the other ones, mention resurrection explicitly. And that's because, something that we've talked about time and again in our course, because it has to keep coming up, it's the one problem that Tanakh created. And that is that the world is unfair. So we have all kinds of approaches that we've surveyed together over the last couple of years, going through different books and their approaches. The book of Job, that's what it's about. But Kohelet has lots to say about it. It's all over the place. Because it is a recurring theme because Tanakh created the problem. Since God is all the Amis and God is fair and God has an involvement in our life and God demands justice and goodness and does not like whatsoever evil... It should be that, okay, bad people should get clobbered and good people should be living a great life. Sometimes it really does work that way. Sometimes it really does not. One exception is what creates the problem. So that's what a lot of Tanakh is about. In the time of the book of Daniel, or the time that it's really dealing with, it's the very first time in our history that our standard toolbox of answers simply did not work. What happened in in the time that he's describing is that the more righteous you were, the more you were suffering. That had never happened before to us as a nation. The usual book was, okay, everybody understood that if there's enough bad people and there's a catastrophe, some of the people suffering might be good. But at least we understood somehow, or we, the prophets wanted us to understand, it's because of the bad people that this is happening. But the book of Daniel is describing the more wicked you were, the more likely you were to be prospering in that time. And the more righteous you were, the more likely you were to be suffering or even getting martyred. And so people said, you know, this collective guilt thing isn't working for us because the bad guys are specifically saving themselves because they're being unfaithful. Those guys who bow to the idol, they're the ones who are going to make it. And those of us who don't bow are all getting killed and tortured along the way. And the book of Daniel is the first book to throw in the towel and say, the world is unfair and that it will only be fair in the messianic era. Right? Earlier books try to solve the problem or to just throw their hands up in the air and say, we don't know how it works. That's what the book of Job is all about. The book of Daniel comes along and says, you know, our belief in resurrection, we believe in it. And not only that, I'm going to use it as a solution to this problem of unfairness. Nobody had ever done that before. It's an amazing revolution of the book of Daniel, which became the heart and soul of what rabbinic Judaism, they took for granted that afterlife is required to solve the problem of unfairness but that had never happened before. So that's what we have over here in source number two. It's the only explicit reference to resurrection, but this is why. In the context of the book, the book of Daniel had to address the problem of unfairness, and he couldn't use the standard answers that everybody had been using. 
All right. An interesting question that comes up if you're a theologian or even just a scholar of how the Bible is put together. If you read the book of Daniel, he's getting prophetic visions. There are angels. He sees God on the heavenly host, you know, surrounded by the heavenly host. So if I asked you, is Daniel a prophet? The answer should be yes. He's getting visionary experiences like all the other prophets we've met. And yet, you may have noticed that we did the books of the prophets like last year. And the book of Daniel is here in what's called the third section of the Bible, the Ketuvim, the writings. So what's that all about? Why not just stick them over with the prophets? So this leads to a very interesting theoretical discussion over why Daniel is in the holy writings and not in the prophets. Why didn't they include his book among the prophets? So Rambam says, well, it's because he's not a real prophet. Rambam actually uses that evidence and several other pieces of evidence to say he's not a real prophet. He had divine inspiration. He definitely was, you know, he's, he's the real deal. But his visionary experience simply was lesser than the prophets that we learned about. So much lesser that he doesn't even belong to the books of the prophets. So Rambam gives a theological answer to it. That's one answer that is on the board. Rambam just believes that Daniel is a lesser inspired figure than Isaiah. And therefore, Isaiah belongs to the books that we call the prophets. Daniel belongs to the third section called the writings. Okay. Can't tell you no. Come on down. But it's weird because he sounds like a prophet. Everything else about him is prophetic. And he predicts very long distance events. I mean, he's predicting all of history unfolding and he's getting it through prophetic visionary experiences. So, So to say that he's not a prophet at all Seems very strange, and in fact, he seems very impressive from a prophetic point of view that he's giving you the entire the entire layout. So Rashi and Abar Benel suggest an alternative, and that's because it's, the problem is always the English language. That's not how they frame the problem. What does the word prophet mean? It means that you're seeing something into the future, right? But what does Navi mean? The Hebrew word is Navi. It doesn't really mean prophet, even though that's the English word that we use for it. What does Navi mean? Huh? Very good. There's a verb, Navi, that we can that we can bring. This is not. This actually, the Nun is part of the root. You know, this is Nun bad Ali. What did you say? Like Lehavi or Navi, to, to bring. What did he say? I'm telling you, oh. to, to bring. To bring. Bring. But, that, but that's incorrect. It's a reasonable thing, because we have a word, Navi, Let's let's bring, let us bring. But here, Navi, actually, the nun is part of the root. It means spokesperson. So so the idea is that a Navi, the Hebrew term for the the Navi, is that he's a mouthpiece for God. God is trying to communicate to the people, but God doesn't typically reveal himself via words or even visionary experiences to everybody. So this individual, man or woman, is going to get a visionary experience and now has a mission to the people. His job is to convey God's word to the people. Yeah? It's fresh and direct. It's clean. Uh, it sounds like an advertisement and endorsement <laughs> yeah, yeah, of a certain delivery as opposed to... But it's clean. But isn't that what God does? That yes. That's it. Well, keep going, Gloria. Yes. No, no, I'm just saying, uh, to me, you learned it very well, and you're exactly right. That's exactly what a Navi is. A Navi is somebody who receives from God and then has a mission to the people. In fact, seeing the future is much less important to the job description. 
it sometimes comes to the territory. Sometimes God uses the future to try to inspire people to shape up their act now. But it's not a fortune teller. The fortune telling part of the prophecy is irrelevant to what makes a prophet a prophet. What, it, what makes a prophet a prophet is what you just said. Right? That the goal is to convey God's word to the people. If you read the visions of Daniel, God never sends him to the people. He never has a mission to go talk to the people of Israel, and in fact, almost never communicates with Jews in the book. He communicates with pagan emperors. He communicates with all kinds of other people in the king's courts that he's dealing with. But God never ever says, here's a vision of the four nations. Now go out and tell the people of Israel so that they can do A, B, or C. He never goes to the people with his visions. So Rashi and Abar Benel say that's what makes him not a Navi. He's a visionary. His prophetic level, his visionary level, is just as good as any other prophet, except for Moshe, or at least there's no way to rank how that goes. But he never had a mission to the people, so he's not a Navi. He doesn't have the classical understanding, but what Gloria said, perfectly right. So that's what seems to be more accurate to the story. So what Rambam tries to do to say that it's of lesser sanctity... I can't tell you that it's not. I, I, I can't tell you what level of prophetic inspiration it is. But it seems much more to do with Daniel was not a missionary prophet. He had no obligation from God to go out there and convince anybody of anything. He simply had to record his visions in a book. Which sets up another important difference between Daniel and all the other prophets. All the other prophets, if you ask them, well, when you predict the future, why are you doing that? Usually the answer is because I don't want this future to happen. Unless it's the messianic one. But all the doom stuff, the whole point of predicting doom is that you don't want the doom to happen. You want the people to shape up and then it will be better. Daniel is absolutely fatalistic. He is simply predicting this is what will happen. And nobody is going to stop this. There's going to be a sequence of four nations ruling the world and then the fourth nation will fall and Israel will reign supreme, will have the messianic era, the end. It's as fatalistic as it goes. He's not calling on anybody to do anything to change that. He's so not like any other prophet. Right? All the other prophets, the whole point is that they're calling on typically Israel, but also sometimes the world to, to do something about it. So that has much more to do with what makes Daniel, what makes this prophet different from all the other ones. The, the answer is that he is not sent on any mission. It's a purely fatalistic series of visions where he's not talking to the people of Israel, asking them to do anything. The book is intended to inspire us. That's very different when a book is trying to inspire versus when the person is out there in the shuk. Right? All the other prophets, they went right into the shuks and right into the palaces, and that's what they were all up to. Oh, what does he do visions? He writes them in a book that we have right here, and our job is now to know what the future will be. And one of the reasons, and, and so what does this book do for us? It reminds us, be faithful even when we suffer. We may have to make sacrifices even to be faithful. And in the end, there will be ultimate justice, among other messages. Right, but those are the core messages. This is particularly important for Jews. I mean, now it's, a, it's considerably different because we take great pride in Israel and the miracle that that has you know, completely transformed us. But all said, we're still a tiny nation amidst a very vast world. Imagine that when you're not even a nation, right? Imagine that where you have nothing and then this mighty pagan empire is reigning supreme. So that's a good moment to feel total despair. And we've spoken about that time and again. So all the prophets, you know, in different ways came along and said, it won't always be like this. So most of the prophets are saying some of that is up to us. The book of Daniel is saying, this is the way it's going to be. 
There's going to be a, a march of nations, and we're going to be downtrodden. But once that fourth nation falls, poof, we're going to finally have that wonderful time that we have been hoping for. Okay, somebody? Okay. Yeah, sorry. Sure. The prophets are, they're all the knowers, they all see, but the prophets have the very powerful mission to teach as well. Oh, so very much so. I would say that's top role. That's why Daniel is not a He's not a te- correct. He's not a teacher of the people in the live form. The book is coming to inspire. Good. So let's go through a couple of highlights because there are also surprising things. In the survey course, I was like pointing out Manishana. What, what makes this book stand out from among the other from the twenty-four? So in the very first chapter, what happens is Daniel and his friends are exiled to Babylonia. They're brought to the palace because they are so bright, and so they're being trained as future wise men of Babylonia. So the king, source four over here, the king allotted daily rations to them from the king's food and from the wine he drank. Now, I don't know what the kashrut situation was in Babylonia back then, but these things were not shared properly. I know it was not kosher food. So Daniel resolved not to defile himself with king's food or the wine he drank, so he sought permission of the chief officer not to defile himself. And the guard said, I can't do that because we all know that people who eat meat are healthier than vegans. That's what he says in the dot, dot, dot. And so Daniel says, no, look at this. Daniel replied to the guard whom the chief officer had put in charge of Daniel, Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah. Please test your servants for 10 days, giving us legumes to eat and water to drink. And the point is, look, if we're any less healthy than the other boys, we'll, we'll eat meat going forward. And of course, as it all happened, they ate legumes alone for 10 days. It worked out great. And, you know, and they posted all these great blogs on the internet about what a le- all legume diet could do. And the bottom line is, this might sound like another example of religious heroism, which it is. And but, okay, tell me besides the laws of kashrut in the Torah, tell me two other passages anywhere in the Bible that discuss kashrut at all. Not to mix the milk of the. That's the laws. Those are the laws in the Torah. So don't count those. Now, as the Torah legislates, animals that we're allowed to eat, not allowed to eat, meat and milk, okay, fine. I know that, but I'm saying in all narratives or prophecies, where they're either telling stories or the prophets are condemning this, that, and the other thing, or encouraging this, that, and the other thing, how often does kashrut ever come up? It almost doesn't come up at all. Even though it's a central pillar of Jewish observance, and the Torah gives it a very prominent role, and for us, that we consider one of the central pillars of, of Jewish observance today, Tanakh almost doesn't talk about it at all. It almost is simply not on the radar screen. I'm hoping that's because everybody was keeping kosher, so the prophets complained about the things that they had to complain about. right? But in the exile, the, re- the reason why this story is so important and why Kashrut suddenly plays a role is because this is the first time that, as a nation, we are in exile. And suddenly it becomes an issue of identity. Because when you're in Israel, everybody's Israelite. You know, whatever problems they had with idols, with other immorality, with all kinds of stuff that they were dealing with, Kashrut was never a defining identity thing. Whereas as soon as you go into the exile and you're in the king's palace, it is. And so that seems to be why it plays a role over here. But it almost, it almost plays no role anywhere else. I just want to appreciate. There's one vision, by the way, all the way at the end of the book of Isaiah, just to answer the statistic, that talk about people who are eating rats and you know, pigs and things like that. But even that is in the context, it seems, of pagan rituals rather than, you sinners, you're eating not kosher animals. So yes, they were eating not kosher animals, but the subject matter isn't kashrut. It seems much more to just do with people who are worshiping idols and engaged in their 
idolatrous rites. This is, I think, the only time in Tanakh that you have a clear-cut case of is a story about kashrut for the sake of kashrut, where it's about kosher food and how the, the friends, Daniel and his friends, are heroes in that particular way. So this has to do with creating barriers when you are in exile, which is something that this book is trying to deal with, that we have to somehow create a stronger identity just because it's not natural. Okay. Then we go over to ch- chapter 2 over here. And even if you've never read the book of Daniel before, it's going to sound staggeringly similar to a much more familiar story. And that's because the book of Daniel is heavily modeled after the Joseph narratives. In the second year of the reign of Nebuchadnezzar, Nebuchadnezzar had a dream. His spirit was agitated, yet he was overcome by sleep. Okay, so we already know where this is going. Here we have another pagan monarch having some tricky dreams. He's going to need some interpreters. And of course, the Jewish one is the one who's going to save the day, right? That's what's going to happen again. Joseph, he already got his claim to fame for that one. Daniel is going to do the same thing over here, but Daniel is way better than Joseph, as you will quickly see. The king ordered the magicians, exorcists, sorcerers, and Chaldeans to be summoned in order to tell the king what he had dreamed. Okay, so same thing as with Pharaoh. They came and stood before the king. And the king said to them, I've had a dream, and I'm full of anxiety to know what I have dreamed. So the Chaldeans spoke to the king in Aramaic. This is where the book turns to Aramaic, by the way. O king, live forever. Relate the dream to your servants, and we will tell its meaning. Okay, simple. We're professional dream interpreters. This is what we do. You tell us the dream, we tell you what it means. That's how it goes. And Nebuchadnezzar says, the king said in reply to the Chaldeans, I hereby decree, if you will not make the dream and its meaning known to me, you shall be torn limb from limb, and your house is confiscated. And Nebuchadnezzar is the sort of sweetheart that we know about from other books. He's an awful guy. But if you tell the dream and its meaning, you shall receive from me gifts, presents, and great honor. Therefore, tell me the dream and its meaning. So Chaldean said in reply to the king, there's no one on earth who could satisfy the king's demand. For a great king or ruler, none has ever asked such a thing of any magician, exorcist, or Chaldean. The thing asked by the king is difficult. There is no one who can tell it to the king, except the gods whose abode are not among, is not among mortals. Whereupon the king flew into a violent rage and gave an order to do away with the wise men of Babylon. Okay, so that's good. That's a dark day for them. So fortunately, Daniel is there and he saves the day. The decree condemning the wise men to death was issued. Daniel and his companions were about to be put to death. The mystery was revealed to Daniel in a night vision. Then Daniel blessed God of heaven. Okay, so, so that's how he's better than Joseph, right? Yosef heard the dreams and interpreted them properly. Right here, Daniel has to get prophecy to tell him what the dream is about and then, of course, the interpretation. And there are a bunch of other things that distinguish Daniel as being superior to Joseph in this regard. Not to put down Joseph. Joseph is amazing. But Daniel, the, the narrative is building on the Joseph narrative and saying, boy, oh boy, oh boy, he, Daniel is really a superhero. He got prophecy and God revealed him even the dream and nobody can even do that. It's amazing. This dream is the first time that you have mention of the the dream was that he saw four he saw a statue with four different sections and then it all crumbled and this little rock came into play and Daniel said it's the four nations. That there will be a series of four nations. You're the head of gold, O Nebuchadnezzar. You're the Babylonians, but then Babylonia will fall to the second nation. They will fall to the third and they will fall to the fourth. And after the fourth, then everything will... You know, everything will finally be messianic for the people of Israel, and he just tells them that. So the big ultimate question which has agitated our commentators in the book of Daniel more than any other is, well, I don't really care much. Of, well, we know that nation number one is Babylonia. Check, because Daniel says so. 
Nations two and three, fumfa around however you wish to fumfa around. What we care about is what is the identity of the fourth nation? Huh? Well, hold tight. So the issue is that if the fourth na- when the fourth nation falls, Mashiach comes. Right? So the question is, who is that fourth nation? So the standard rabbinic answer is that the fourth nation is Rome. And the logic was, well, let's think about it. Babylonia is number one. Then came the Persian Median Empire, which is where we are right now. That's number two. Then we have the Greeks. That's three. And then we have Rome, which is number four. Now, this was an important interpretation indeed, because as far as the sages of the Tal- that wrote the Talmud were concerned, they were sure that the prophet Daniel here is envisioning that Rome is this mighty fourth empire, and when it falls, the Mashiach will come. Now, we experienced something of a technical difficulty with this interpretation when Rome fell, and Mashiach still wasn't here. So... Medieval commentators, it's really fascinating. You can just read them through and you will find a very easy to detect phenomenon. It depends where the rabbi lived, how he dealt with his fall of Rome problem. If the rabbi lived in a Christian country, then he was very likely to say, oh, Rome became Christian and therefore Christianity continues Rome. So that's how Rashi did it, and that's how most rabbis living in Christian lands took it. They took it that Christian, the Christian empire was an extension of the Roman empire. And therefore that became the fourth nation. So when the Christian empire falls, that will go down. Whereas rabbis living in Islamic lands, because now there was Islam, and that was a force to be reckoned with also, said, well, it's hard to ignore the presence of Islam. The sages in the Talmud did because there was no Islam yet. But now that there is, and they're all over the place, and they own a good percentage of the globe by the time these medieval rabbis are writing, maybe they play a role also. So I made for you a convenient chart. And the, bat, and the, the Four Kingdoms, the, the last source page, where people like the sages who were dealing with real Rome, or people like Rashi and Ramban living in Christian Europe, so they understood the four nations just the way that I told you. That, was the cla- that became the classical way of understanding it. Whereas Ibn Ezra, living in Muslim Spain for a while, said it's Babylonia, Persia, Media, Greece and Rome are now the third nation. And Yishmael, or the Islamic Empire, must count for something. That's the fourth nation. And then some weren't sure where to go, so they hedged. They said that the fourth nation is Rome and Yishmael. In other words, the world that we, the medieval world that these rabbis were writing in, since part of it was Christian and part of it was Islamic, okay, so that, that all becomes the fourth nation. The most interesting, the most, the most interesting question against it that we can ask in our times, other than maybe we're missing something, is that what do you do with like Nazis and communism and other things that are neither really Christian or Islamic? And as the medieval commentators who were writing and talking about empires and powerful forces, world powers to be reckoned with that are evil, okay, so you were dealing with medieval Christian Europe, it was, or, or medieval Muslim Europe, depending on where you were. Okay, so that's what it was. But what do you do now when there are other major forces of evil that have been out there that have nothing specifically to do with either Christianity or Islam? So it's a, it's a nice 21st century question to ask against all of the opinions. So nowadays, contemporary scholarship has moved completely away from that, and I believe correctly. So if you read 20th, 21st century writings, they're very unlikely to say any of the answers that I just gave you. And they will say that the book is actually, it actually names four nations. 
So that makes it easy. Why don't we? Do, uh, there's a reason why none of the earlier commentators did it. Four nations who are named are Babylonia, Media, Persia, Greece. Greece is the fourth nation. And that after Greece falls, then the Mashiach will come. So, well, that's not where I was going with it. So, so why did none of the commentators? Why did none of the commentators adopt that approach? Because Mashiach didn't come. <laughs> right. It couldn't be that. As the sages understood, by the time they were writing, the Greeks had fallen, the Romans were in charge. So it couldn't be, even though you could count on your fingers, you could see there are four nations that are named. It's Babylonia, Media, and Persia, and Greece. And that's it. Greece is the fourth nation. Now when Greece falls, that's when Mashiach is supposed to come. Yeah, Shari? But it might be considered, if you want to follow the approach of the last one, that they reached the, the state of the empire may have fallen, but the influence over subsequent generations is phenomenal. Uh, whether it was, what is Aristotle, uh, Plato, influenced Jewish commentators too. So in that sense, Greece perpetuated itself in the mind. The legacy of Greece is still here. The legacy of Rome is still here. Yeah. But I think more so for Greece, okay. perhaps. I think you're making a fair point, but people were more likely to extend Rome into Christianity than Greece into Western civilization type of thing. But, but just in terms of, but, but conceptually, what you're saying is perfectly fair. But the main problem, yeah, Dr. Glazer? Yeah, just one of the, 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 how does the end of days as God and my God Oh, this is all very intertwined. You're, you're right. Gogamago comes up with the exact same thing, and commentators do the exact same trick, which is a trick. I don't want to use it in a negative sense, which is that they look at the world. Everybody wants Mashiach to come soon. So what you do here, if you want to have a cataclysmic war, is you look, look around at the world powers today, and you try to figure out, okay, Let's figure out which two powers are likely to fight each other, and when they do, hopefully they will fall, and then Mashiach will come. So in the medieval period, that was very commonly going to be Christianity and Islam, because they were fighting each other for the world dominion, right? So many rabbis living at that time assumed that the war of Gog and Magog is the war between Christianity and Islam. If you read the Art Scroll on Ezekiel, which was published in the 1970s, not surprisingly, he thought that maybe Nazi Germany was the war of Gog and Magog in World War II, right? It's not quite a Bible scholar, but Ronald Reagan, when he was still a governor of California, made a public speech saying that Russia is definitely Gogu Magog. And, uh, you know, we have to fight these guys. Okay, so the point of the matter is, I, again, I wouldn't put him on the same Bible interpreter tier, but 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 he was but he was ta- but he was actually following a very classical approach to the Gogu Magog issue, which is you look around, you figure out who the big bad guys are, and you say this must be they because we want Mashiach to come soon, right? Now, the reality is that the book of Daniel, following up with your thing, because this is all intertwined in terms of the history of Jewish thought, what most rabbis were busy doing in the medieval period were actually looking at the dates. Daniel would predict something's going to happen in in seven times 70 weeks, which people took to mean 490 years. Well, 490 years from what? And before you know it, everybody was trying to calculate the year that Mashiach would come. It was, a, it, was a, it was a very big enterprise in the medieval period. And bless Rambam. Rambam, you know, the diehard rationalist who you would think was dead against it. So he gets on the, he gets on the air and he says, it's terrible to do that, to calculate dates and the Mashiach will never figure it out. But let me tell you my family tradition of what, what year Mashiach is going to come. And then he tells you. He doesn't want to let go of it. Even Ezra does trash the whole enterprise. But many others actually predicted dates. The gutsiest of all time, 
this is so gutsy. I can't believe he did this to this day. Uh, my, my all-time hero, Daniel Tzchak of Arbenel. I understand why he did what he did. He wrote his commentary on Daniel in the year 1497. Okay, right after the expulsion, right? I mean, and here he is. The Jewish people are suffering one of the greatest traumas of all time. And he actually sat there with the book of Daniel and predicted that Mashiach would come in the year 1503. That's gutsy. Most rabbis, when they predicted Mashiach will come, they usually predicted it after when they thought they would die. Right? So we don't know their reactions to what would happen if Mashiach doesn't come. And Barbanel predicted something that would happen in just six years, and he lived to, he lived to, be, he lived to 1508. And there is nothing in his writings after 1503 that acknowledges, oh, Mashiach definitely is not here. Right? So that's what was going on, particularly in the medieval period, although honestly, when I was a yeshiva student in Israel, it was still going on in, in 1989. There's plenty of, plenty of rabbis were still using the book of Daniel and other sources to try to calculate why Mashiach was going to come in 1989, which was right when I happened to be there. So it was really a hotbed of excitement at the time. But unfortunately, that also did not take place. What probably is really happening is that this entire enterprise is based on a fundamental error in reading the book of Daniel, which is that the book of Daniel isn't predicting a fourth nation that hadn't happened yet. He was predicting Greece. And specifically, he's predicting the story of the Maccabees. And historians are very quick to note that if you just read the details of the visions that he gives, it actually very strongly coincides with 2nd century BCE Antiochus, the Maccabees showing up in all of those things, which is very exciting for somebody like me. I can't even begin to tell you how much. What bugs me about Hanukkah, I'm sure I've complained to you about this also, is that there's no biblical text. It drives me up a wall. What am I going to do with myself on Hanukkah? How do I every other holiday I go right to the biblical text and then our commentaries and I'm a happy guy. It always works out great. But then Hanukkah rolls in and what am I going to turn to? The books of the Maccabees? They never made it. They're not part of our canon. So I've read them before, but sorry, they don't have the same oomph in our tradition that a biblical book would. And therefore, I'm just not as excited about Hanukkah. Now it's fun because my kids get to unwrap presents, but. But in terms of the learning cycle, that is what really gets me engaged in all of this. There's, there's nothing doing, yeah, Shari? So, um, when did Daniel live vis-a-vis the period of the Maccabees? Hundreds of years before. So this, he knew nothing about it, and you say there's a parallel. Does, does that mean he redacted the book, or someone else later on redacted That's the book? Probably the, probably the second one. We don't know for sure. Now, the, 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 traditional, the old traditional way would have been to say that Daniel predicted he prophesied with predictions, but the, the more recent Orthodox scholars would say that it's something along the lines of he might have predicted general events in the 6th century BCE, but some, but some later story. generations updated the book. Or tailored it. Tailored it. All, all, the, sa- all, the, all the same thing. So in other words, to make it accurate to the, the Maccabean period. Do you have an idea of like when it was redacted? Or when it Ballpark 2nd century BCE. It sounds, like it, it was, it sounds like it's an excellent teller of the story of the Maccabees and that era. Interesting. Yeah. Do you know who actually wrote we, uh, I just work here. We, we, we never know. The sages, the sages hedge it. They don't give a name to who wrote the book. They say the men of the Great Assembly wrote the book. The men of the Great Assembly were a rabbinic corpus that spanned for centuries in, into the second century BCE. Mm-hmm. So the sages of the Talmud don't disagree with the way contemporary scholarship deals with it. Now, they also think that it's, they were just, you know, it's, it's sacred, but not that it was all complete in the sixth century BCE. Okay, so, and that sets up a principle that we've seen time and again, which is the expectation that Mashiach could have come 
at the time of the Maccabees. Now, what the book of Daniel is saying, it's, it's preempting and predicting and writing about the Greek period and the Maccabean story. But the point is that there would be potential for the Messianic era to come. That the, if that fourth nation falls, Mashiach could come now, but unfortunately it might not come now. So if we look at source number six, that's where you get to see some of this outright, where Daniel is updating the book of Jeremiah. Jeremiah, you may recall, said that 70 years after the Babylonian Empire rises is when it will fall, and that's when Mashiach will come. So Babylonia did fall, but Mashiach didn't come, and we had a lot of stuff to talk about when we dealt with Haggai and Zechariah and Malachi and the whole and the book of Ezra, which we'll get to next week. It's all revolving around how Mashiach sort of came then, but not really, right? So the book of Daniel takes Jeremiah's prophecies, and look what he does with it. In the first year of his reign, source number six, I, Daniel, consulted the books concerning the number of years that, according to the word of the Lord that had come to Jeremiah the prophet, were to be the term of Jerusalem's desolation, 70 years. Okay, so the prophecy, read the book of Jeremiah, it's 70 years, that's the answer. While I was uttering my prayer, the man Gabriel, whom I had previously seen in the vision, was sent forth in flight and reached me about the time of the evening offering. He made me understand by speaking to me and saying, Daniel, I've just come forth to give you understanding. Seventy weeks have been decreed for your people and your holy city until the measure of transgression is filled and that of sin complete, until iniquity is expiated and eternal righteousness ushered in. Prophetic vision ratified and the holy of holies anointed. In other words, we're updating Jeremiah's prophecy. It's not 70 years anymore. What is it? It's 70 times seven years. In other words, it's now 490 years off from Jeremiah's predictions. This is an update to the book of Jeremiah. It's amazing. And it, of course, zings it into the Hellenistic period, which is exactly where, where we need it to be. So that's what seems to have happened over here, that the book of Daniel starts in the Persian period, way before the Greeks, you know, centuries before the Greeks. That's where the person Daniel is set, but the visions certainly carry over into the into the Greek period. And again, there could have been some updating. The source that Sherry and I were discussing outside, here you see it inside in source number seven. The men of the great assembly wrote Ezekiel, 12 minor prophets, Daniel, and the scroll of Esther. So they don't give Daniel credit for writing this book because that would create a very interesting anomaly for us in terms of, well, is Daniel really writing such detailed information about what's going to occur many centuries later? as opposed to the men of the Great Assembly, which allows for a complete redaction and editing and updating process to the book, which likely is what happened. So the likelihood is, as Malbim says also in the 19th century and, and what 20th century commentators are very quick to point out, the book of Daniel was written as a Maccabean book that made it to the Bible, as opposed to the books of the Maccabees that did not. So suddenly I have a biblical book. I'm so I'm thrilled. It's changed my life, i got to tell you. It's, it's good to have a biblical book that pertains to Hanukkah, even if it's doing it in a very different way from the books of the Maccabees, which are celebrating the Maccabees. Here it's all hidden. Here it's talking about the whole story as big, evil force. The Greeks are going to come, really be dangerous, but then the, they will miraculously fall, Mashiach will come. And of course, that, didn't, that part didn't happen yet. What is M- KMDG? It's Yechezkel, Shnei Masar, Daniel, and Esther, right? The English translation doesn't work. You have to see it in the Hebrew. The Hebrew letters are just the first letters of the... But where's Yechezkel? It's a kuf. They they did it with a kuf instead of... Got it, got it, got it. Okay, and then... 
it works. It works better. It works better in. Don't worry about it. Look at look it up in the Hebrew. It'll it'll suddenly oh, make sense. Here's just okay. here's yeah yeah. Just look it up in the Hebrew. You will see it will it will make sense. That seems to be what the book is primarily about. It's a book set in the Persian period that's predicting the Greek Empire and specifically the Maccabean story. Now chapter three, which is not in the sources, but I'll just tell you what happens there. Two, two important, well, what happens is Nebuchadnezzar, after hearing the interpretation of the dream, that he's the head of gold, and that later empires will replace him, is he builds a statue that's all of gold. And he demands that everybody in the empire bows to it. And the logic is, other than he's an idolater, right, idol, is that the whole point is that the whole statue is of gold. He's trying to undo the, the dream. The dream is that the head is of gold, but it will be replaced by silver and then bronze and so on and so forth and iron. Nebuchadnezzar is trying to say, well, if I can get everybody to bow to a golden statue, then Babylonia will last forever, which is really what he wants in all of this. He doesn't. He knows that he will die, but he wants the Babylonian Empire to always reign supreme. So that's the story where Daniel's friends, Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah, refuse to bow, are thrown into a fiery furnace, an angel shows up, saves them, a lot of bad guys die along the way, and the end. From a methodology point of view, this is this is just a critical moment in the history of interpretation. You know, stories that you may have learned about, whether younger or older. You know, the sages of the Talmud try to figure out what's exact what exactly happened to Abraham prior to his being seventy five years old, which is where we meet him in the Torah. Right? In other words, we just meet him. God shows up and speaks to him and says, "Go," and he goes, and the rest is history. It's an amazing story. Well, how exactly did Abraham become Abraham? Is the question that the sages want to know. How exactly did God find it right to speak to him? The Torah gives you zero information. So what the sages do is they have to read all of Tanakh as one global book, which is how they always read Tanakh, and they have to find stories that are analogous somehow to the Abraham narratives. One story that's incredibly similar is the story of Gideon, Gideon, back all the way back in the book of Judges in chapters 6 through 8. If you go through that story, you will see there's a ton of literary parallels, same words are used, same everything. And in that story, Gideon shatters his father's idols. So for the sages, since there are all these links in the text anyway, and there possibly are oral traditions that are accompanying all of this, it made sense to have stories of Abraham smashing his father's idols. And of course, the consequence would be, well, now we need an analog. The king in that story becomes Nimrod, who's the king of Babylonia, parallel to our king, Nebuchadnezzar of Babylonia. And if Abraham's going to refuse to bow to Nimrod's idol, what's got to happen to him? Fiery furnace. And that's coming from the story that I'm telling you about right here. I know that, that story is drawn from the biblical story of Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah, that Abraham is going to be thrown into the fiery furnace and likewise be miraculously saved. So that's how Midrashim grow. Midrashim grow out of not just imagination of the sages. They're actually reading the entire Bible as one unit. And they're able to find through subtle parallels and word plays, they're able to create worlds to fill in all of the gaps. It's an amazing phenomenon. So this is a, so now we're in the book of Daniel. I could tell you that one. The Talmud asks, and it's like my daughters are wondering the same thing. I'm very proud of them for wondering this. Daniel's not in this story. Well, where did he go? I imagine that he's going to defiantly stand up along with his three friends, but somehow he's just not on the set at all. So the sages of the Talmud say, oh, he must have been out of town running some errands, or he wasn't, he obviously wasn't there. I don't for a moment think that he was bowing, but, but he just is not on the set. So it's a curiosity of the story that his friends are the heroes, but he's nowhere. But the Talmud asks a beautiful, you know, they, they imagine a beautiful or very tragic thing afterwards. 
after the miracle, you know, so we, our focus is on the miracle, how these three heroic Jews, Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah, refused to bow or thrown into the fiery furnace are saved via miracle. So the Talmud then imagines the following scene that happened after that, which is all these pagans, you know, you're thinking the pagans are all going to be, wow, that's amazing. The God of Israel is so incredible. What a powerful, Kiddush Hashem, sanctification of God's name. But the Talmud says the opposite. They went to all the other Jews who had bowed and said, you guys are nuts. You believe in a God like that and you bow to this lousy statue? What's wrong with you? And they spit on these people so much that they drowned. (laughs) It turned into a disgrace, which is an amazing negative slant on what seems to be a very positive and upbeat story. Like, let's hear for the heroism of those three. But the Talmud says that good for the heroism of the three. What about the rest of them? How come everybody else is bowing down, which is a part that you might miss when you read a story like this. That's really what the Talmud is saying. It's like, wait a minute. There's, there's, there's more to it than that. So that's what chapter 3 brings home. I'm going to actually turn this page. Okay, we actually, we talked a little bit about how for the first time in this era, in the Greek, in the Greek, it was the Greek period that this all happened. Now, for the very first time, it was the most righteous, faithful Jews that were suffering the most, and the ones who were unfaithful are specifically the ones who were rising in power and succeeding quite a bit, which is why the book of Daniel comes along and says there will be a future you know, future resurrection, and that's when things finally will be fair. That is the first step in a very lengthy process in, in Jewish tradition of finally just conceding once and for all that the world is unfair. The Talmud actually plays off of the book of Daniel with the story, and I'm, I'm sure we must have mentioned this when we did the book of Job, but just in case. The great heretic in the whole Talmud is Elisha ben Abuya. Right? Acher. Known infamously as Acher, right? But, but his name is Elisha ben Abuya. He was one of the greatest sages of his generation. Became a heretic. So the Talmud struggles with that, because again, it's one thing if somebody who doesn't know all that much loses his faith. It's still depressing, but happens. When one of the greatest pillars of faith and tradition falls apart, that's, that was actually very alarming. It really shook the Talmudic pages quite a bit. So there are all these stories about what exactly turned him the wrong way. And one of the most celebrated ones is, that's a different one, but the, one of the most celebrated ones is when Elisha ben Abuya watched a cute little kid and his dad asked him, can you please fetch me some eggs? And so the kid said, sure, daddy, and he runs up the tree, shoes away the mommy bird just as the law demands, and he fell from the tree and broke his neck and died. Now, the reason why Elisha ben Abiyah was particularly plagued by this is that these two commandments, honoring your parents and shooing away mommy and bird before fetching the eggs, are two commandments where the Torah explicitly promises long life. So it's not enough that, oh, a child died. That alone is a problem that could shake anybody, right? But this is bigger than that. This was child lost life specifically through fulfillment of two positive commandments where long life is promised in the Torah. So Elisha ben Abiyah said, that's it. If God can't bat a thousand, I don't believe in this God, right? I mean, that, that's basically what he had to say, Susan. In the book that you told me about it, As a Driven Leaf, leaf yeah. In the very, the prologue says that his father was a, a big disbeliever, and they were afraid he, he would pass it down like he, he um, took after him in that way, deep inside, and he came out later eventually. Right. With, with all of these things, you have to take both that book and even the Talmudic stories with a certain historical grain of salt. We're not sure the historical core. I'm sure that there was an Elisha ben Abuyah who really lost his faith. But what, 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 the, what, what caused it, I'm sure, is a very complicated thing. But I'm interested just in this story. 
for today. This story shook him up and he walked away. He said, that's it. I can't believe in God's providence if God promises long life and this kid didn't, there's nothing he can do to take it away. Well, in the last page, it's the, it's the tractate on the laws of Kashrut called Chulin. The very last page of that tractate isn't about the laws of Kashrut. It's about the kid falling out of the tree and it's a discussion headed by somebody named Rav Yaakov who probably was the grandson of Elisha ben Avuya. And they raise the question of, well, what do we sages do with this kid? It's like, if, if you don't walk away from faith, if you're holding on to faith, wait a minute, this is still a problem, isn't it? So they go through all the tricks in the book. They come up with every answer that any rabbi or any traditional source ever said, and they reject all of them because you don't even know, it's, you, you, would, you would cry hearing what they are. They're so painfully inadequate. So the sages thought so too. They reject all of them. And finally, the conclusion is we require afterlife to, to solve the problem of fair, fairness, meaning this world is not fair. Right? It's just a formal concession to what might be intuitive to all of us, but it took our tradition many, many centuries to reach it. And the book of Daniel is actually very critical in being able to say the world ultimately will be just. When the messianic era comes, then finally the world, the world will be fair in the way that we want it to be fair. But until then, it, it won't be, and we're faithful because we're faithful, because we're so faithful we to God. We don't question anything that's not fair? We still are bothered by it. We're bothered by it every single time. But we don't expect to answer the question, right? In other words, in the Messianic era, things will be leveled out and, and evened out. But the book of Daniel is one of the first public biblical concessions that there, there's ultimate fairness, but not necessarily fairness now. Yeah? Um, I can see that is a teaching of not by blind faith alone. A child has to take some responsibility of watching the strength of the limb of the tree that he's climbing or the father of the tree that Look, I don't, I don't want to blame the kid. You can do what makes you happier in this. It's a conceptual... I understand, but it's a conceptual... I'm all in favor of human responsibility. But in, in this story, I think the conceptual framework is correct. I think that the point is that as long as there's some unfairness in the world, this is a banner example of that. Okay, then we have the question. So going back to Gloria's question, of course we still struggle with it. It's not, the question's never going to go away because Tanakh still gives us the expectation of fairness. But I'm telling you that the history of Jewish thought, while keeping that expectation there moved away from it. They brought afterlife into the foreground. You know, much, 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 as, as much as Tanakh tried to keep it away from the foreground, rabbinic thought very much brought it into the foreground to make us feel better because the bottom line is if the more righteous people are all suffering, then it's hard for everybody to hold on. They should all hold on. But that's not, but that's, in practice, that's not what happened. So it was a tactical move to try to keep people, give people a greater sense of hope which I think is very important also. On that happy note, it's great to be back, even if this one's really only for a short while. Next week, God willing, we will do Ezra Nehemiah, which is one book traditionally, and so we'll do it in one week. And then the following week will be the Book of Chronicles. And then we have the week off.